What I was going to do is go to that town, and we was going to start knocking on every door we could, win everybody to Christ we could, and then take that to other places to start churches, and then give our heart to missions entirely around the world. That was what my focus was and what I wanted to do. So with that as an idea that I wanted to convey to the people that I thought God wanted, I began to do what every one of us does and begin to preach. We begin to go out. Not a lot of them at first would go, but I'd take the couple of guys that would go with me, and we'd just start trying to win people to Christ. And we did. We saw some people get saved, and the next thing you know, we were up to 20, 25. That's a pretty good size when you've gone from 15, and it's basically when you're in the living room of a house. And we have nowhere to go now. And so I thought, well, Lord, you've got to give us something. I don't know what to do. And I looked around, and the only place I could find was a storefront. Now, that's a big increase, man. You go from a front room to a storefront. But at least we could, we could put 60 people in there, and we could take the back part of the store and kind of petition it off and have some Sunday school rooms. When we begin to move up to that place, I begin to hear in the back of my heart these words. Now, when Ezra had prayed, and I thought, okay, when Ezra had prayed. And at first, it just was a reminder of when I got saved, and I tried to just not pay a lot of attention to it. We went ahead and got into the storefront and began to do the same thing. We began to get people encouraged to go out with us and to talk to people about the Lord, to talk on their jobs, to do whatever it was to reach people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we begin to grow. And before we know, we were running about 60 people. And I'd hear this in the back of my mind. Now, when Ezra had prayed, and I said, Lord, I do pray. And I thought I had a prayer life. I, I always tried to wake up in the morning and and get with the Lord and, and uh, read my Bible and pray. And I'm wondering, why do I hear this in the back of my mind? Now, when Ezra had prayed. So I didn't really know what to do. I just said, Lord, I know you're telling me this, but you know I pray. You know I pray, Lord. And so I went on. The church <clears throat> began to grow some. We saw more and more people come and and uh, before long, we realized that's not going to be in a room in this place. We're just not going to be able to do it. We don't have any place to sit, and we're going to have to find a place. Now, we're in a town that's about 5,000, and we, we, the people in the church don't have a lot of money. I knew we couldn't go out and build anything, couldn't buy anything. I didn't want people to be in debt anyway. So I said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but we've got to look around. So I asked a couple of the men if they would go with me and we'd scout around and see if there's a place where we could meet that would be a suitable place for us to go. And we looked and there wasn't anything. The only thing that was open was an old VFW dance hall. And it had such bad connotations and I didn't want to do that. And so I just said, I'm not going to be a part of that. So we... We really didn't know what to do. And one day, one of the men came to me and he said, Brother Elliot, out on Georgia Street, there's a Bradley Motors old Chevrolet dealership is empty. And I talked to a man that, that knows the lawyer that's handling it for him, and, and we could rent that building. So 
I had a little bit of sight at that time, enough I could see without a cane and not good, but I could see. So I said, well, let's, let's go out. I did not want to go out there. I thought that's a crazy thing to do. And so we went out, and I loved the location. It was the best location in town, right across from that beautiful park. Everybody had to go by it, basically. And I thought, the location is great, but it was a rundown Chevrolet garage. And the, the parking lot was needing work upon it. The, the, the showroom, literally, the, the glass was just about to fall out, and it cracks around. It was cold. There was... It was just, just didn't seem conducive to me. I was embarrassed that we were looking at it, but I didn't know what to do. And I kept saying, what are we going to do, God? We can't just stay here. we got to do something. And so we would go to breakfast sometimes after visitation in the morning or before visitation, and I would meet with some of the men, and they said, Preacher, don't just write that off. We never know what God's going to do. Maybe, maybe we could use that showroom at the front, it's big enough. We could double our attendance. We could clean that thing up, and we could do it. So I relented. I said, okay, men, let's go. And I met the lawyer, and he allowed us to lease it at a real reasonable rate. And though I was embarrassed, I said, okay, we'll do this. And so we moved up to that Chevrolet garage. Now, folks, there's nothing beautiful about that Chevrolet garage. I'm telling you, it, it wasn't. I was embarrassed, to tell you the truth. We we had to hang some curtains around the, the plate glass in the front. And, and like I say, it was the old plate glass. It was just, just, just freezing a minute. We had services in there where people were holding buckets because of the dripping coming down. I'm telling you, that's what it was. We, we, we didn't have any money. We had to get some. Some church gave us some theater seats, which were not the best. And we put them in, made a little platform about a foot high, and we moved in. But our people had a pioneering spirit, and I was amazed at their attitude. They said, Preacher, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. We had a, a fan, a, a little heater in the back of it, folks, that I'm telling you, it was so loud and rattly, and it wouldn't even hardly heat the auditorium. In the winter, people would sit with their coats on, and as I said, holding buckets. And people were getting saved. And after another, I thought, whoa. And people started coming. And the, and I thought, well, God, thank you for the old building, even though I'm embarrassed. And I'm hearing these words, Charles, now when Ezra had prayed. And I'm saying, Lord, you know I pray. You know I'm setting a time aside to be with you, God. You know what is going on in my heart. I'd hear that two or three times, and all of a sudden, the church just hit a stagnant point. I guess we were probably about 120 by that time on, on an average Sunday morning. Nothing changed. Everything seemed to be fine, except all of a sudden, no one was getting saved. We were going out on Saturdays. We were going out on Tuesday nights, and we had numbers of people. I, I can't tell you how many times we knocked every door in that town. And all of a sudden, nobody's getting saved. Now, the church isn't losing particular anybody, but it's not growing either. This didn't happen for a week. This didn't happen for a month. This happened for months. 
Now, I'm getting troubled because a church is to be alive. Something's wrong. And I'm saying, Lord, something's bad wrong here. People aren't getting saved. There weren't any problems in the church, no problems at all in the church. People would come early, early, beat us sometimes there, and stay late, fellowshipping, loving each other. If you would ask them, they said, man, this is a wonderful place. But it wasn't a wonderful place to me because something was wrong. I told my wife, I said, something bad wrong. God isn't there. Something's wrong. <clears throat> she sensed it, too. I'll just be candid with you, folks. I told my wife one time, I said, don't throw away the packing boxes. I said, I, I, maybe I can only take a church to 100. But if, it ain't gonna go, if it, people aren't going to get saved, then I'm moving on starting another one. I'm not going to stay here. By this time, I'm hurting inside. And I'm saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. And I hear in my back of my mind that when Ezra had prayed, so I go into my office and I say, Lord, you're trying to get through to me about this thing of praying. And Lord, you know I'm praying, but there's something you're trying to tell me. So, folks, I started buying books. I've read everything Andrew Murray ever wrote, E.M. Bounds ever wrote, praying John Hyde. I begin to read the life of Robert Murray McShane. I begin to do everything I could on reading about prayer and start to pray. Robert Murray McShane made two statements that I've never forgot, so I put them on Braille. By that time, I couldn't hardly read, and I was learning Braille. And I'll tell you a couple of the statements that he made. He said this, and this is what caught my attention, no man is greater than his prayer life. McShane said, no matter how you rate greatness, no man's greater than his prayer life. I wrote that on Braille and taped it to my desk so I could reach up there and feel that. Below it, this is a second statement. It says, nothing more reveals a man's walk with God than his prayer life. You kneel bound by somebody in prayer, you'll know in five minutes their relationship with God. I wrote that down. Didn't know why I wrote it down, just felt I needed to because God was saying that when Ezra had prayed. And so I'd read that and I'd feel that and I'd say, God, I want to know how to pray. I, you know I'm praying. I don't know what to do. But God, I'm begging you, souls have got to be saved. God, we've got to see people saved. Nothing happened. It was a summertime, and <clears throat> I had a couple of young guys that um, were uh, in Bible college, and they had come back for the summer. One of them was Randy Love that was... Part of the reason I'm here that uh, was on a trip to Israel with, uh, he pastors the Anchor Baptist Church out in Utah. And um, they come for the summer and they like to come by the office and just talk ministry, what's it going to be like and all that kind of stuff. And they, I'd had a preacher come by a, a month or two earlier and said, Brother Elliot, have you ever been to a preacher's jubilee? I said, no, sir, I don't even know what a preacher's jubilee is. He said, there's one in Indianapolis, and he said, it's nothing but a bunch of independent preachers, Baptist preachers, get up and preach. He said, it's phenomenal. There's no access to grind. There's no political nonsense. He said, you ought to go. I thought, I'll never get over there. How am I going to get to Indianapolis? And I said, well, thanks a lot. You know, he said, well, if you ever could, you need to go to that. So here we are in the summer. I'm talking to these two guys. 
and we're talking ministry. And I said, hey, guys, you, got, you want to go to a preacher's jubilee? They said, what's a preacher's jubilee? I said, that's exactly what I ask. I said, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> but I said, uh, if you guys would like to go, I, I, we found out when it was. It was later in that summer. And they said, as long as you don't drive, preacher, we'll go. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's go. So we drove to Indianapolis, about a five-hour drive or something like that, and got up early. They were going to have a big feed at this church in the afternoon and evening, and then they were going to start the church services that night. And uh, I had to be back the next day, so I could only be to that one-night service. It's only one I could do. I can't remember the reason, but we had to come right back. So we got over there. Now there's just the three of us, and so... We don't know anybody. We don't know anybody, and it's a huge church. I'm guessing that night there were well over a thousand. There were there are a lot of people there, lots and lots and lots of preachers, and people were just fellowshipping. They had a big barbecue, and you could eat all you wanted. And so the three of us were eating, and they came over the loudspeaker, and it said, "All you preachers that want to pray, meet in a certain room next to the pastor's office." So I said to the guys, okay, let's go. And they said, nah, no, no, no. It said preachers, and we're not preachers. I said, you're close enough. Come on. They said, nope, we don't, we don't feel right, preacher. And I said, well, then go get the front row. You, you know, I'm the kind of guy that likes the front row of a Baptist church. You know, you, you've heard the old story. You know, you got to get there early in a Baptist church to get the back row. That's the truth, isn't it? You know, that's the truth. And, and I've never been that way. I wanted to always like to get down to the front. And so, and so I said, now, guys, if you're going to do it, get down as close to the front as you can. I, and, uh, and I could see. And I said, but I'm going. So I made my way back. And uh, when I went into the room, it was a huge room. And there were literally, fellas, there were men standing all around that, that, that huge room. So I walk in there, and there's a couple of rows in a horseshoe shape of metal chairs and a little lectern in front of them. And I thought, well, it had been a Sunday school room or something. And so I looked over on the front row on the left side was an empty chair. So I looked around, and it didn't seem like anybody was going to take that. So I just said to the man who was sitting next to it, he was just sitting there very humbly, had his Bible open, was sitting there. And I said, sir, is anybody sitting here? And he said, no, sir, just have a seat. So I sat down and I introduced myself. I said, I'm Charles Elliott. I pastor Faith Baptist Church. And he introduced himself and said, I'm glad to meet you, brother. I'm a prison preacher. I do all my preaching in prisons. And I said, that's wonderful, brother. Praise the Lord. I'm glad to meet you. About that time, the pastor comes in. And he comes to the lectern and he says, fellas, I'm glad you come back to pray. We really need to meet with God tonight. We, we need God's presence in our services tonight. And uh, so I'm glad you've come to pray. He pointed over to his right and he said, brother, would you open in, and brother, would you close? Now, I thought that's what that meant. I thought that meant that this guy's going to pray and then this guy's going to end. What that meant was this guy's going to start and then everybody's going to pray out loud. And I'm telling you, I've never been in a service like that, not against it. I'd just never been in one of them before. And so all of a sudden, man, I was hearing all this, oh, God of Elijah, and all this stuff, you know. Now I'm on my knees in front of my metal chair doing the Baptist peak. <laughs> Come on, you've done it. 
because I ain't praying because I don't know what's going on here. I'm hearing noise. These are Baptists praying. I'm thinking, what in the world did I get into? And they're praying out loud, and everybody's going, and it's going on and on. And I'm, I'm just thinking, Lord, I, I'm, all these things in my mind, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do. And I sensed the Lord said, look at the guy next to you. I can't explain that. I just sensed God said, and I looked over, and he wasn't saying anything. Had his face flat down on a metal chair, weeping. And weeping and weeping. And I just felt like the Lord said, get close to him. And I I tried to, without him knowing, kind of move as close as I can. And folks, let me tell you something. When he finally addressed the throne of God, it's like he put his arm around me and pulled me into a place I'd never been before. And I sensed God as I'd never sensed before. And he was speaking to a God that he knew in an intimate way that evidently I didn't. And he prayed very quietly, but he prayed and he wept and he worshiped God. And then he got up and sat down. Finally, the guy on the other side ended. And when I sat down, he was just sitting there limp. What I didn't know, he was the last preacher that morning, that night. So we go in the auditorium and we have a, a typical service just like this. They had a special and some songs and then they introduced a preacher. They had three preachers that night. I, I'm sure they were good services because a lot of amens. I don't remember much about the first one. I don't remember much about the second one. But finally the, the pastor said, now we're going to take a, about a 20-minute break if you need to use the restroom or whatever. That we'll be back in for our last sermon, our last message. So everybody gathers back in. We have a song, and he gets up and he says, "Now, folks, you don't know this man. Most of you, he's a prison preacher, but I'd like you to hear him tonight." Now he's about halfway back, sitting with his wife on the aisle, and folk, when he got up, you could hear a pin drop in that auditorium. He walks up. Doesn't make a lot of fanfare. Comes up, says, turn in your Bibles, and he started preaching. And I'm telling you, when he started preaching, God moved into that auditorium. It was amazing to me. There were Baptist preachers, 250-pound, 300-pound men weeping like a baby. At the end of the message, he gave a simple invitation that lasted well over an hour. People would start flooding. There were so many people that they were in the baptistries all across the front. They were on their knees. They were by their pews. And about the time there'd be a lull and you'd think, no, then somebody else would fall to their knees. And it went on and on and on. And God said, no man's greater than his prayer life, Charles. And nothing more reveals a man's walk with God than his prayer life. And God spoke my heart. We had to get back that night late. I'm in the back seat of the car, and I'm not talking to nobody. They're fellowshipping up in front, and I'm just broken down. And God is still saying, Charles, now when Ezra had prayed, 
I go back and I decide now I'm really going to pray. So I, I, made, I made it known to the secretaries that I don't want to be bothered. I'm going to pray and I'm going to seek God. And I begin to cry out to God, help me, God, to know what I'm supposed to do. You know I'm praying, God. You know I love you. You know I love this book. And I pray. Nothing happened. Nobody's getting saved. We're going out all the time. Nobody's leaving, but nothing. Nobody's nothing. We might have a, a couple visit here, and then occasionally one would have to move because of a job or something. But we stayed right about the same. And, just, and everybody would have said, well, it's a good little church. Man, they got a good number. Everything's going fine, except I wasn't fine. Because something was dead wrong, and I didn't know what to do. And I'm saying, God, no. And I'm seriously, Brother Abel, I thought I was going to resign. Virginia and I talked about it. We're not quitters, but I said, I will do this, Lord. Uh, I'll go start another one. And, and no matter what it takes, I have to start from scratch. But people got to get saved. Something's wrong. This is why you put us here. And something's dead wrong, God, and I don't know what. It's like God is just not in the building anymore. I was preaching as hard as I could, as straight as I could. So now I'm really discouraged. There was a fellowship meeting kind of like this, not about 30 miles away, and I had a full-time guy working with me, Steve. And I said, Steve, uh, let's go over tonight to to the fellowship meeting on a Monday night. And I said, let's don't take our wives. I said, I didn't give him any reasons. I just didn't want to talk to anybody. I was terrible company to him, I'm sure. I looked out the window. I was not a happy camper. I was discouraged. He knew that, but he, he gave me some space. And so we went into the, to the meeting, got the front, close to the front again. And, and the, I don't know who was preaching, but when he got up to preach, he announced his text. And it was um, there where Jesus went to Gethsemane. And I don't remember, folk, a word of that message that man had. Because when the text was read, where it said that Jesus went to Peter, James, and John and said, Could you not tarry with me one hour? God stopped me. And the rest of that message, God just began to climb all over me and eat the shingles off my roof and everything else. Charles Elliott, I give you 168 hours a week. And you cannot get me one hour a day alone with me. Now, folks, if you think I'm trying to tell you to do that, you're dead wrong. I'm telling you what God told me. God told me on that road, Charles Elliott, you cannot even give me that much of your life. I didn't tell Steve that. I didn't tell anybody. I went back and I told my wife, and that's it. And I said, I told the secretary, I said, I will not be disturbed for one hour. And the only person that can ever disturb me is my wife. And she has access anytime. But nobody else does. And I'm going to give myself to God. And I knew God was speaking clearly to me through his word, Charles. And so I went in and I knelt down. Now, folks, I could pray around the world in seven minutes. I could pray for every missionary, everything. And now you've got 53 minutes and you're on your knees. What are you going to do? And that's where my journey began. 
And God began to teach me there's a whole lot more than praying than asking. There's a lot of it is communion and being still and waiting and keeping your Bible open and listening. And I begin to pray and I begin to say, God, you've got to do something. You've got to do something. And I begin to try to wait on God for that time and listen. I'd go to preach. Nobody got saved. Nothing was happening week after week. A lot of times we would go home at lunch, Steve and I, because it's a small town. We could have lunch and then come back to the office. And I was really discouraged then. I, in fact, I was going to write out my resignation. And I just figured there's so many places, God, you can lead me. I'll start another work. So we go to lunch and we come back. I am so discouraged, for folks. I don't know what to do. I, I am so down. I don't know what to do. So I go into my office, and I'm looking out the back window, and I can't see a lot, but I can see some trees still and a few things, and I'm, I'm not looking at anything. I'm just staring off. I turned around hit the intercom, and I said, Steve, go home. He said, Pastor, what's wrong? I said, just go home, okay? Spend some time with Kathy, okay? I don't want to talk about it. Just, just go. That's not my personality, but that's probably about how curt I was. Had a part-time secretary named Noni, and I buzzed her. I said, Noni, why don't you just go on home seven? Pastor, I got a lot. I said, Tony, Noni, please, if you don't mind, would you just just go home, okay? And uh, so now nobody's in the building because I don't want anybody in the building. I'm, I guess, a bit on a pity party. I'm not a happy camper, and I don't know what to do. So that's dead silence. I lock all the doors so I can just be there. And I look out the back window again, and I think, God, I can't take it any longer. And so I just say to myself, I'm moving on. And I turned around, and I had an old cassette tape recorder, the old cassettes. That's the only way I could listen to the Bible. And I had it next to the two pieces of that I'd written in Braille. And I wasn't even knowing what to do. I was so just discouraged. I just went like that. And I hit that tape recorder. And when it came on, you know where it came on? It came under the model prayer. In Luke 11, where the disciples said, uh, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And that verse pierced me like a sword, and I fell to my knees, and this is what God said to me. Charles Elliott, I've been screaming at you from Ezra 10.1 all these months and months and months, and you would not listen to me. And then when you did, you read every book, but you never one time asked me how to pray. And I'm telling you, folks, I was on my knees for over two and a half hours. I ran that back and forth, that model prayer I've read a million times, without no book, without anything. God said, you want to pray, Charles? And that thing fell apart so clearly to me. He said, if these things are not true, and you're like, you're not praying. And I began to take each one of them, and boy, God had to deal with this old preacher, let me tell you. 
And I was so wrung out that when I got up, I was so weak and had sweat through my clothes so bad, I didn't know if I could even get off the floor. And I sat there, and I knew something was different. And I knew that there was a peace that came through me. I couldn't explain it to anybody, but I knew something had changed. I sat there about 30 minutes, got a glass of water, came back and thought, I'm going to call Virginia and have her come and get me. And as I sat there, I just said, Lord, whatever you want in my life. And I've had a little statement since then, anywhere, anything, anytime. And as I sat there, I sensed it was from the Lord because I've never done it before and will probably never do it again. I sensed that I needed to call the men of the church. So I picked up the phone. I called my wife and I said, honey, would you call? I said, by the way, I'm not coming home tonight. She said, everything okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine, but I'm not coming home. I said, would you call? start the alphabet and go halfway through and call every man in the church and ask him if ask him if possible could you meet the pastor at 6:30 in his office i knew they already had plans it was a, i can't remember now it was a tuesday or probably a thursday night cuz we had visitation on tuesday so it was one of those nights it would be a family night and what have you and so I said, you call, and then I called Noni, and I said, you take the rest of the alphabet. Don't give it a lot of explanation. Just ask if they'll meet me in the office. I was surprised. I was surprised. I was literally surprised. We had 20-some men show up. And so I didn't even go in my office. I stayed in the outer office, and we just stood. I didn't even ask them to sit. I said, men, I deeply thank you for coming. This is this is an off night, and I said, just the fact that you'd get in a car and come down here because I ask you means a lot to this preacher. But I said, man, I, um, I'm not going to interrupt your, your, your night, but if you could spend the night with me down here at the church, would you do that? And they kind of looked at me, and I said, I'm not going to explain anything, but if you would spend the night down, I don't know if we'll even go home. I knew some of these guys had to be to work early in the morning. And um, a number of them said, uh, I said, go. If you promise your family, don't you break your promise. You're going home. But if you could stay, I'd appreciate it if you'd stay. Uh, by that time, I there was about 10 guys in the church that I just had known through the months and years that just had a sense of wanting God. I, I know them. And, and they stayed, plus about three or four. I think there were about 15 that stayed. I said, men... You willing to spend the night here? And they said, yes, sir, pastor, whatever. I said, uh, okay. I said, and call your wife and tell them you might not come home. And they did. And I said, now follow me into the auditorium. So we went in, and I got down in front of the pews and just let them sit there. And I told them the story I just told you. And they looked at me because they didn't know anything was wrong with the church. And I told them that story. And I said, men, God hadn't been in this building. And you know it. I said, we've been going, we've been giving everything out, and we've been doing thing, everything right. But I said, God has made it clear to me that something's missing, and it's him. And I said, men, I'm going to tell you what's missing in my life is your pastor. That was God. 
Yes, I am saved. And I'll always be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. But just because he's present in my life doesn't mean he's present around my life and everything I'm doing. And I said, God had, to, God had to take me through the ringer today for about three and a half hours. And this night may be the night, hardest night of your life. And I wouldn't blame you if you left right now. And if you do, I'll love you. I'll pasture you. I'll care for you. But if you want to stay, I believe God wants to do something. So they said, we'll stay. So this is what I told them to do. I took the model prayer. I said, men, here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave. I want you to go out of the auditorium and find a place around this building, but not close to anybody else. I don't care if you get a janitor's closet. I don't care where you get, Sunday school room, whatever you want. That's yours. Nobody else gets in there. And I want you to get down on your uh, sit down or deal, whatever you want to. But I want you to find a verse on worshiping God, the glory of God, the presence of God. And I want you to get those verses. I don't want you to look something up in, in, in a concordance. I want you to find them in the Bible. And when you find two or three of them, I want you to sit there and meditate. Then I want you to come into the auditorium. It'll be pitch dark in here. There's enough pews. By that time we had pews, I said, there'll be enough. And I said, you find a pew, but that's yours. And you mark it. Nobody else will be close to you, not even remotely close. And I said, so spread out. We got plenty of room. And that's your place. And I said, men, please do what I ask you to do. I want you to fall on your knees. And I want you to worship God as you never have. I don't want you to ask for anything, confess anything, anything. I want you to vote whatever it takes from five minutes to five hours until you know you've been in the throne room and you worship God with everything in your heart. You be still for a while and then you worship again and you worship until you could say before God, if I stood before you, you know, I couldn't have worshiped you more. And then I said, quietly get up, go to the restroom, go back to your spot and then I find you to find a verse on yielding. Here's where a man walked out. I said, man, this is going to be the hardest night of your life. And I took him to the model prayer, which said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. I said, fellas, you know what that verse says? I didn't either till today. I said, we look at that verse and we long for the kingdom. We should long for the kingdom. There will be a, a millennial age. But that's not what Jesus is saying there. That's a surface truth. But Jesus, we want to ignore the next part. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we want him to come. We want him to reign. Absolutely want him to reign in, in Jerusalem. And we want this world turned around. I said, but wait just a minute. If you go to Luke 17, 21, it said the kingdom of God is already within you. So here we are asking for the kingdom to come. He's already in us. And fellas, the only way God can get his work done is through us. That's what he chose to do. And if you and I are not broken, and if you are, are, are and I have our own plans in life and our own dreams 
and everything else, and God can't crush us, then he can never use us. And I said, if you're not willing to surrender everything in your life tonight, your career, your family, your health, I don't care what it is, man, if you can't lay that before God tonight and mean it, I'd like to ask you to go home. One man stood up, a wonderful man. He said, Pastor, these words, I love you, but I could never do that. I said, Brother, I love you too. And I'm glad you're an honest man. And he walked out. I said, anybody else want to walk out? Because I said, men, this is the hardest night you will ever have in your life. Because God's going to take you up on it. And if you mean it, it'll change your life forever. Those men stayed. They came back with a verse and stayed. I could hear men weeping and crying having a hard time. I said, don't, don't, don't worry whether you're five minutes or five hours. It doesn't matter who's around you. You stay there until you can look God in the face and say, God, you know I give you everything, anywhere, anytime, anything. I'm through with myself. Every aspect of myself, every dream I've had, it's yours. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ from this day forward. And I said, when you're done with that, then go out Go to the restroom, get you a drink of water, and get you a verse on confession of sin. And so when you come back in the auditorium, don't, don't worship him. You already worship him until you can't do it anymore. And everything you have is his now. Every dream, everything. And I said, now, get clean. And I said, man, if you can't get clean before God, then go home. And I said, men, don't get into self-condemnation that you're trying to beat yourself up as a worthless. That's not what God wants. God wants you to be clean. If you regard iniquity in your heart, iniquity is not sin. It's the thought of sin. And God said, and I said, if you're not willing to deal with that in every aspect of your life, your thought life, your, I don't care what it is, and you're not willing to come out from this world and, and holiness doesn't become your goal, then you ought to go home. Nobody left. And I said, when you know you're right before God, whatever it is, be quiet, because God will probably bring something else up. And then when you know there's no other way, I said, then go out and come back in a verse on asking and kneel down and ask anything you want. The last man walked out of there about 2.33 in the morning. It was so quiet. Steve and I were standing, wanting, going to lock up the door, and the last man who walked by wouldn't even say hi to me. Just walked out, got in the car, I heard it slam. Walked out, Steve locked the doors, and we didn't even say a word to each other. What do you say on a night like that? God moved in such an incredible way, it was still. I got up the next morning, and people started coming forward. People started getting saved. And so much happened that we couldn't get people in the auditorium. People were getting saved all over the town. It began to be noised around. What in the world is happening down there? We couldn't get all the cars in the parking lot. We took the back end of the Chevrolet garage, had to clean out the junk because they left a lot of it there. In order to baptize people, 
we had to take what was called where the aligned cars. We took the lining equipment off. It's just a big hole in the ground. We sealed it off, and we called it uh, the grease pit. (laughs) And we had double garage doors, and we would have so many people that we were baptizing that people were all over the place, and cars were stopped along the main street watching it happen. We had two newspapers came from different towns to write an article, what has happened all, and they wrote her down, why are all these people being converted? And people were getting saved. And all of a sudden, that thing took off. And we never saw a Sunday that there weren't people saved. We never hardly saw a week, a lot more than two, that we weren't baptizing people. We had so many people, we had to finally clear it out. And without going in debt, we, we took that back part, built an auditorium. Didn't cost us a penny. And we begin to fill it. And all of a sudden, we were just going. Right after that night it happened, the men come to me. I didn't go to them. Those men come to me and said, Preacher, we got to do this every morning. At 6 o'clock, every morning except Sunday, we met in what we called the upper room. It was a, a place above the offices. We didn't meet and drink a bunch of coffee, pat each other on the back, and how you doing, brother? We came in, and we fell on our face before God. And I'd hear those men weeping over souls, weeping over souls, weeping over souls. Men were so so broken for souls. God filled those men. Let me tell you, folks, God filled those men with the Spirit of God. There were so many. There was guys I didn't even want to loose on the town. We had one guy that was toothless. And we had guys that had been in drugs. We had guys that were lumberjack. I mean, they had hands like meat cleavers. They were big guys, and, and they wore flannel shirts. And you would say to yourself, man, I can't lose these people in town. But you want to know something? They knew where the people were. And they went out, and they started winning to Jesus Christ. And we started seeing people saved. And they wanted to pray every morning. Some of them could maybe pray just a few minutes to go to work. Others could pray maybe an hour. I remember one day we were so broken souls, we fell on the floor. You won't believe this is a Baptist church. We didn't care. We were on the upper room, and we had our hands out in a circle, weeping, weeping, weeping over souls. And God began to save people, and that thing went on and on. You know why it went on? Because there were 15 guys that took prayer serious that God could change, and God changed the church. Someone that said it, and it's true, unless you pray, you can do nothing. Until you pray, you have done nothing. And then I want to say this to you tonight. I think it's still in the Bible. And I only have a King James Bible. But it still says my house shall be called a house of prayer. And men, if we don't return to that, we're through. Father, I don't know what you want to do tonight. But I pray you'll speak to us. We're losing our nation, God. We're losing our churches. We're losing our children. I just pray you'll speak to us and give us a man of God that will pray. Place it as a priority to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work. 
we'll go back to communion with you and getting right with you, getting clean before you, broke before you. We throw the nonsense out in our churches and come back to you and let you be God. I just ask you to speak to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand quietly. Preacher, you just take the invitation, whatever you want to do.